just a couple of things. First of all, why are we using the Christian Standard Bible? Well, it's a good translation. It's actually a really excellent translation. It's a new one. Uh, but we're not using it all the time. We usually use the NIV. I've changed it this time, though, because the NIV in verse 13 has, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And all the other English translations have tree. And I, I think the idea is a tree. So I thought, let's just go with this one. The other nice thing that the uh, Christian Standard Bible does is it prints all Old Testament quotes as they appear in the New Testament in bold text. So as you read through it, um, you can see just visually on the page, these aren't my highlights this time. This is the way that you would read it if you're opening up a CSB Bible. I'll pray and then we'll look at this part of the Bible together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us today in words that were written so long ago because it's not just a human word but the word of your spirit. And so we pray that we'll understand your word and that you'll move us to trust you uh, with everything. Amen. Well, what date is it? It's the um, 10th of September. Do, do any of you remember where you were and what you were doing uh, 22 years ago tomorrow? Some of you do. It's hard to forget, isn't it? Um, Fiona and I had just got off a boat on the Sundays, uh, and we were driving uh, from where we'd kind of... Um, I think we'd, we'd parked the, the camper trailer and we went to McDonald's for breakfast with the kids. And on the TV, there's all these pictures of planes flying into buildings. Uh, on the newspapers, there are a couple of them that had it and there were others that didn't have it, I guess, the time that it was printed. Uh, but it's hard to forget 9-11, isn't it? Um, it's a... It's a it's an occasion that has kind of marked the Western world in what we think about with security and travel. Uh, it's made us aware of different ideologies, of the passion and convictions with which people uh, hold those ideologies. Many people died. And uh, it's quite extraordinary that others didn't die. Uh, there was a number of things that took place that really saved the lives of many people. But we don't celebrate it, do we? I mean, yes, it's, it's in America, but it affects all of us. We don't celebrate the death of the people on that day. Uh, we went to Port Arthur a few years ago, and of course, Port Arthur now um, is a memorial to two significant events. It's a memorial to the convict uh, jail that was there but in more recent times it's now a memorial to the slaughter of innocent people uh, through the madness of a guy with guns shooting them down but we don't celebrate their deaths none of them but that's what makes Christianity so strange that we actually celebrate the death of Jesus and you see it in all kinds of ways. The cross, of course, is the most ubiquitous symbol of the Christian faith. Uh, over the last couple of years, when we couldn't meet in the school, we were meeting in a little church building down the road, and right up the front of it, there were glass tiles in the shape of a cross. Many churches have a cross uh, on the wall or, or perhaps placed on a table. Many Christians wear a cross as jewellery. We 
think of the cross when we think of the Christian faith, we celebrate one particular day, the day of the death of our founder, Jesus, as Good Friday. What's with this? Why do we do that? What's the obsession with, with death? You go back into the Old Testament and you do have a celebration of death. You have daily sacrifices of animals. You've got an annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. You've, you've got an understanding that when people go to the temple, that there is an animal that's being slaughtered, its throat's being cut, it's being burnt as a sacrifice, and it has some connection to the person who brings the sacrifice. What is that? Well, we're going to have a look now at uh, this passage in Galatians. It's an important passage, particularly because of its focus on the death of Jesus. And you can see it there in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who's cast a spell on you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly displayed or portrayed as crucified. What's with this focus on the crucifixion of Jesus? Um, you come to the New Testament and you find that all four Gospels lead up to the crucifixion. In fact, Mark's Gospel, you go through three years of Jesus' life in about half the book and then the last week and the last day of Jesus' life in the other half of the book. How come? What, what's this focus? Why the death of Jesus being so important? And of course, there are predictions about the death of Jesus. We've seen them uh, when we've looked at Isaiah 53, for example, and other places. You get to each of the Gospels and you hear of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. We'll talk about that next week. Each of the letters that are written talk about the importance of the death of Jesus. Resurrection is a feature, but the death of Jesus in and of itself is seen as important. Why is that? Well, friends, I think it's so important that we grasp this. So let's work our way through this passage. The first, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background. In the situation in Galatia, it seems that there are a group of people who are saying that Christians need to become Jewish in order to continue and grow as Christians. And one of the big ways that they were highlighting this was the need for um, non-Jewish men to be circumcised. There was also stuff to do with the days of the week, uh, to do with foods that people could and couldn't eat, some food not being kosher. But they were basically telling people that if they were serious about following God, then they needed to become Jewish. They needed to follow the law of God and the practices of God if they were going to be right with God. And Paul's responding to this. And if you'd worked your way through the book of Galatians up to this point, you would have discovered in chapter 2 something quite extraordinary. That is, the apostle Peter is refusing to eat food um, with the Gentiles. He'll only eat Jewish food. And what does Paul do? Tells him off in no uncertain terms. This is the Apostle Peter. Why does he do that? Because he wants them to understand what the true Christian faith is about. So let's have a look. Verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I only want to know this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? 
It seems that they've forgotten how they started. Um, And Paul reminds them, he says, basically, how did you become a Christian? How did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of the law, that is, doing all the rituals of the people of, of Israel? Or was it by believing what you heard? Implication, of course, it was by believing what they heard. What did they hear? Well, they heard of Jesus Christ, who was publicly portrayed as crucified. You see, there's a contrast being made here between doing things, that is, observing the law, keeping the commandments of the law, and believing things, that is, what you've heard. And he contrasts the doing with the believing Do you become a Christian by observing the law? Well, you see, if if that is the way, then you've got to realise that you'll fail because you will not keep the law. In fact, the whole of the history of Israel is a testament to the fact that you will not keep the law. It, It can't be that, Paul's saying. The other option is believing, believing in the crucifixion of Jesus. And he uses pretty strong language here. You foolish Galatians. Verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham, who believed God, And it was credited to him for righteousness. So Paul is saying here, there's a contrast. Either you believe in yourself, that is, you trust in what you're doing, or you believe in Jesus, that is, you trust in what you've heard about Jesus and what he's done for you. And and that's the essence of the contrast. What you do for yourself or what Jesus has done for you. That's what he's getting at. Well, Paul wants uh, the Galatians to know that God's way has always been by believing in God's promises and not by performing so that God accepts you. And surely the, the ideal case study to prove this is to go back to the founder of Israel, Abraham. So Abraham here features as a case study. And he says, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, we saw this when we were working through. Abraham was made promises. God said to him, you're going to be the father of many nations. At this time, Abraham doesn't have a son doesn't have a child. Uh, It gets to the point where he's about 100 and Sarah's about 90 and it says Abraham believed God. What's he believing? God's promise. He believes God's promise despite the highly humanly unlikeliness of this happening. He believes in God. So then, here's the logic. Verse 7, you know then that those who have faith... These are Abraham's sons. Now, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith 
and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that Abraham was circumcised, therefore you should all be circumcised. Now, Abraham was circumcised, but that was in Genesis chapter 17. The quote that he gives here, he believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, is in chapter 15. In other words, Abraham's righteousness with God is not the result of being circumcised. So Abraham's a kind of a a, a case study, a blueprint, if you like, as to how it works. How does it work? By trusting in the promises of God, not by in doing a ritual that God then says, oh, you're righteous, I'll accept that ritual. In fact, when uh, Romans draws this contrast, when Paul writes to the Romans, he contrasts Abraham and his righteousness by faith with law-keeping and says it couldn't have been through law-keeping because Moses didn't arrive on the scene for another 400 years. And God accepted all the people between Abraham and Moses as they put their faith in his promises. So it's, it's an Old Testament lesson to tell them a simple point, that is, you're not right with God through keeping law, you're right with God by trusting in his promises. And what is the key promise that they're trusting in? Well, it's the death of Jesus. That's the promise. We go on, and he'll mention quite a bit here about the failure of going the route of the law. And you'll notice in the next paragraph, there's, there's three Old Testament quotes. Um, here he's showing that even if it was by law, you wouldn't get there. So verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it's written... Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. In other words, if you're going to go the route of the law, you've got to keep everything. You break one thing and you've broken it all. It's, uh, it's a little bit like a crystal vase. And, and you, you just drop it the once. You've dropped it all, right? Verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. And I think he's making the same point both positively And negatively, if you're going to try and keep the law, you've got to keep it all. If you don't keep it all, then you've broken it all. And uh, that way you're failed, you're you're under a curse. And, And I think it's helpful for us to remember this because sometimes people think that God has dealt with people in two different ways. And I think this is a misperception of Christians even. That is, they think that after Jesus, God treats people as righteous if they put their trust in Jesus. But up until Jesus, God treated people as righteous if they were good at keeping the law. So the Old Testament's a book of the law, 
and rule-keeping, ceremonies, rituals, commandments, New Testament, freedom that comes from trusting in Jesus. This says no. No, it's always been about trusting in God. For Abraham, for Moses, Samuel, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the only way any of them could be right with God is by trusting They're trusting in the promises of God. They don't necessarily understand how they're going to be fulfilled in Jesus, but it's always been by faith that you're declared to be righteous. And of course, the popular misconception of Christianity in our society is that Christians are are do-gooders. Well, they used to think we're do-gooders. Now they think we're do-badders. And therefore, we're just hypocrites because we say that we're do-gooders, but we're do-badders. But we never say that we're do-gooders. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that we put our trust in Jesus because we're do-badders and we need to be forgiven. But they don't understand that. All right, so that brings us then to an important argument about the death of Jesus. And I want to take the remainder of our time on the last two verses. So verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, let's just take this phrase by phrase. First of all, Christ redeemed us. What does redeem us mean? It literally means he paid the price to set us free. And it's a big price. He paid the price to set us free by becoming a curse for us. Now we need to think a little bit about how that is worked out, what exactly that means. But the curse of the law for disobedience meant death. In fact, even before the law, disobedience to God led to death. Adam and Eve cast out of the garden, separated from the tree of life. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. And then with Moses, there's a law, and then death reigns after that still, but now it has a focus. It's through disobedience to the law. People don't measure up. We don't put God first. We don't follow God. We don't trust him with everything. We we don't respect that God is God in our lives. We turn aside as what the Bible calls sin. And what it's saying here is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that disobedience leads to death, by becoming a curse for us. Literally, therefore, logically, by dying for us. The curse of the law leads to death. Jesus becomes a curse for us. That is, he takes on our sin and he dies for us. Now, the New Testament puts this in a number of different places in different ways. The one who knew no sin that is Jesus, became sin for us. Jesus takes upon all of our sin. He himself took our sins on his body on the cross and he died for us. The New Testament picture is of substitution. Jesus takes our sin, all of it, all the past, present and future sin, And God lays it on Jesus. The punishment for that is God's judgment of death, spiritual death, separation 
from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out. He's taking our curse, the curse of death, and he's paying the price. Because it is written, and here's the next element to this logic, because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now that seems a little bit obscure, but it's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 21. And in Deuteronomy 21, we're reminded that rebellion against God involves being cursed. And there's a particular aspect to this where people are not to be left hanging on a tree overnight because cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. And with this as the background, it's now applied to Jesus. So, so Paul is saying of Jesus that he has taken the curse of God for sin by being hung on a tree for us. Yes, it's a cross, but we get the idea. It's, NIV has a pole. It's being hung up in our place. He's taking the punishment that we deserve. He's becoming a curse for us. Now, last week, we, we, we got a glimpse of just how radical it is for, for God to take on human flesh and, and become a baby that grows up to be a man. Jesus, who is the eternal son of God, becomes a man. The creator becomes part of the creation. That, that's gobsmackingly, amazingly too difficult to comprehend. The one who's created all of these galaxies in this vast universe becomes a human being on planet Earth. But it goes a step further this week. He became a man with the purpose of dying. The purpose of dying, the intent of dying. God enters into our world with the intent of giving his life for us. Jesus' purpose was to give his life as a redemption fee for others so as to buy us back and set us free and make us right with God. Jesus takes God's curse on sin on himself and pays the price. Now, some people object to this, saying it's immoral. That how could God pour out his judgment on an innocent human being by putting all of human sin on that innocent human being? That's a fair call, fair criticism. How could God take all the sin of, of millions and place it on one person? How could that one person be a substitute for the millions? Well, it's because God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. The one who's hanging on the cross is Emmanuel, God with us. You see, the one who is sinned against, God, pays the price himself. That's what's so remarkable about this. This is why Christians focus so much on the death of Jesus because it is on that cross on Good Friday that we have our sin forgiven, that we can be set free from the curse. This is the undoing of, of Genesis chapter 3. We saw the hints of that with 
with all the curse language of Genesis 3 being replaced by all the blessing language of Genesis 12 with Abraham. But it's ultimately now being fulfilled properly and completely in Jesus. The curse being undone. And why? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And here's the why. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. See, the climax of Jesus' death on a cross is so that people of all nations, not just physical descendants from Abraham, not just Israelites, not just Jews, but people from all nations, people from throughout the Roman Empire, people across in Europe, people down in Africa, people in the Americas, people in Southeast Asia, people even in Australia, people in the mid-north coast, people even in Bonnie Hills can receive the blessings that God had promised to Abraham. You see, when, when God gathered this man, Abraham, and, and he said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations and I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you and I'm going to bless you and through you all the nations will be blessed. He had Jesus in mind. That's why that family tree is so important. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now here we see Jesus bringing about the climax of that promise and he brings it to fulfilment. How? At extraordinary cost. By dying on the cross. That's how. And he does so because he cares about people from every nation. Friends, this is, this is why people throughout the centuries have been missionaries. Why Paul would, would go from one city to another city to another city... Well, actually, let's be more specific. Why, why Paul would go to one city, he'd be cast out, they'd throw rocks at him, they'd throw him into prison, he'd break through, he'd go to another city and they'd do something similar. He'd, he'd go by boat across somewhere else and he'd get shipwrecked and then he'd be brought before the authorities and they'd lash him with 39 lashes and they'd throw him into prison again. And why would he keep doing that? Because God had made a promise that he would bless the nations. And, but why would Paul do that? Because he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he knew that the one who was cursed by God, and he knew that Jesus was cursed by God, because Paul was a Pharisee, he knew his Old Testament. He knew that for Jesus to be hung up like that on a cross was to be under the curse of God. But he also knew that God had raised him to life. And so he wasn't dying for himself, he was dying for others. And so he became a missionary. And so people throughout the centuries have become missionaries. And, and so, to be frank, every Christian is called to be a missionary. We're called to bring this wonderful hope that comes in Jesus to those who are without hope. Those around about us, members of our family, members of our workplace, 
people we surf with, people in our streets, people around us. They need to know that there is a hope for this world, that there is a promised blessing for them. If only they will seek forgiveness and put their trust in the one who died in their place. When we look at this, we we see that the undeserving are offered everything. That, that, That God holds back nothing. That the blessing that he gives to the nations, the, the blessing that comes to you and to me is nothing less than receiving his spirit. That means God chooses to take up residence in us and among us. I mean, God can't give any more than to give of himself. It's a great picture here. That is, if you put your trust in Jesus then Jesus takes your death for you. Though, yes, you will physically die, Jesus takes the punishment that each of us deserve so that we can be forgiven, given God's righteousness, have God dwell within us, have a hope for eternity. See, when I was growing up, and I grew up in a Christian home, I had a number of children's Bibles. I went to Sunday school. I went to a thing called Christian Endeavour. Went to youth group. Went to some Bible studies. And the Bible to me was, well, it was a group of stories and many of those stories I knew pretty well. I could remember them by the pictures in those early children's Bible story books. But I didn't quite know where it was all headed. I, I, I didn't have a picture of of God making promises that he was going to keep in Jesus. I didn't see that there was a trajectory that that was leading all to this one event, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I didn't get that. And because I didn't get that, I, I, I fell into the trap, I think, of this particular passage, and that is of thinking that I needed to be good if I was going to be right with God. And so my days were often filled with anxiety of not being good because there were many things that I did that were far from good. And I remember having long prayer times on my bed at night trying to remember everything I'd I'd possibly done wrong. That is, if I died that night, that God would forgive me because you know what I hadn't grasped? I hadn't grasped the death of Jesus. It just hadn't yet clicked for me that because one had died for all, that meant that all of my sin, past, current and future, the price had been paid so that I could be set free. I left home at 17, I went to university, I started hearing the Bible as an adult. I had to grapple with things, trying to work out what had I just inherited from mum and dad, what was just a part of my previous Sunday school, church and youth group experience, and, and what was true? What did I believe now? And as I looked at the scriptures and I focused on Jesus and his death and his resurrection, and most specifically it was in Romans chapter 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've been justified, that is declared right with God, through faith in Jesus, 
how much more will we be saved from his judgment to come? And it clicked into place, the death of Jesus. He died my death. My sin was placed on him. That payment was paid. It wasn't a matter of whether I'd had a good day or a bad day, whether I'd remembered everything that I'd ever done wrong or whether I'd forgotten a few things. No, there was a, a, an exchange, a transaction that, that took place in history around AD 30. Around. Don't know exactly. The day we celebrate as Good Friday was the day when Jesus took my sin and he paid the price. And I want to ask you, do you know that to be true? Because he died for you too. And all he requires us to do is to believe in him. Not believe he existed, but, but believe in him. That is, to put your confidence in him, to trust him, to, to have your faith in what he's done for you. That's all he requires. He doesn't expect you to fulfil a self-improvement program. He doesn't expect you to kind of work your way through and write down a list of every single command that there is in the Bible and, and systematically look to tick all of them off. And then if you get to the end and you've ticked them all off, then you realise there's another one that says pride. And you've got to cross that one because you're so proud of all the ones that you've ticked off. See, it's not like that. No, we could never measure up to God's standards and he knows it. And so he sent his son Jesus to die for us, to die in our place. Friends, we will all sin and we'll continue to sin. But we have one who has paid the price we have one who, who hung on a cross in our place. And once you recognise that Jesus died for you, you can have assurance for your future. This was the big thing that changed for me. Back in 1980 it was. I began to have confidence that my future was actually secured by God. That because Jesus had died in the place of me and cancelled all of my sin, paid the debt, set me free, I could be assured of my future. Because it wasn't about my performance. It wasn't what I do. It was believing what he has done. Friends, that's the way you start the Christian life and if you've not started that, I want to encourage you to put your trust in Jesus. And if you'd like help in doing that, just... Let me know. I'd love to meet up with you and, and just explain more of how this works. And if you have taken that step, are you assured? Are you really assured of your standing with God? Because if you're not, just look again at the cross. If Jesus died in your place, and you put your trust in him. What do you fear? He who gave his life for you, he will keep you to the very end. Next week, resurrection. That's how we know all of this is true, by the way. The resurrection. Let me pray. 
Our loving Father, we thank you that you are a great God. We thank you that you've done what is impossible for us. That is, you've made us right with you. And for any of us here who are not sure about that, who, who know that we need still to, to, to put our trust in Jesus, to, to be confident in what he's done for us and to, to give ourselves to Jesus, I just pray that you'll help us to do that. If some of us are unsure and we're struggling and doubting, please help us to be clear, help us to understand, help us to be confident in Jesus.